0: everyone before we start I wanted to let you know if you would like to watch our whole service head to our website that's dc2.me and from the media drop-down click sermons you can watch our whole service there and now here's this week's sermon the year is 1893 I was walking along the road with two friends the sun was setting I felt a breath of melancholy Suddenly the sky turned blood red. I stopped and leaned against the railing, deathly tired, looking out across the flaming clouds that hung blood and soared over the blue fjord in town. My friends walked on. I stood there, trembling with fear, and I sensed a great, infinite scream pass through nature. So those are the words of Norwegian painter Edvard Munch. I think I said that right, Munch, Edvard Munch, describing his his inspiration for a painting that a few years ago sold for, listen to this, $120 million. And here's the painting. I think we have a picture of it. And it's called The Scream, right? And whether you're a art historian or not, you probably have encountered this or seen it at at one time. And I found out, it's interesting when you're studying for things, um, preaching and stuff, uh, the stuff you stumble upon, the rabbit holes you go down. And I remember seeing this sold for $120 million and it made me want to scream, right? $120 million. Well, my name's Rob. I'm part of the community here at Discovery. It's always an honor and privilege to be able to Um, Share God's word a little bit. I love hanging out with the leaders here. Um, Recently, spent some time with Zach, and one of the things I there's so many things I love about Zach, but one of the things that I really love is just hearing him talk about you guys and his heart for you. And so I know that you know it, but this is from someone that um, someone else. um, Man, that that guy loves you guys. He cares for you very deeply. Thinks about you often. I know he prays for you, uh, wants the best for you. And so it's an honor to be here and continue on in this series in in Acts. But this painting, The Scream, was painted more than a hundred years ago. And people say, well, what was, what was the inspiration? What was really going on? And Munch kind of shared his story. And, and a lot of people say, well, he I think he was having a panic attack that day. And coming out of the panic attack was this painting. But as I read different opinions about that, some say, well, maybe his Angst and maybe the bewilderment that he was experiencing wasn't necessarily just a panic attack, but maybe it was rooted in the changing society that he was witnessing in a post-Christian Europe where now there was this world that, that didn't seem to have any fixed spiritual position anymore, any fixed moral perspective. Truth didn't seem to be what it used to be. And there was this loss. And maybe it's in this loss where the angst came from. And, and I think we can identify with that to some degree, right? Because we're experiencing something similar in a prevailing way. And I think it's left many people, I heard one pastor say, with a lot of moral and spiritual Vertigo. I think that's a pretty accurate description of kind of what we're experiencing right now in life. And so I think literally or symbolically, maybe out of fear or anger or dismay, whatever, we place our hands on our face and scream. We say, enough. I don't like this. I don't know what to do. What is going on? But maybe sometimes when we're not screaming, we consider doing something. And, and for all sorts of reasons, some good, but probably some not so good. And and our goal is really, well, I want to change the trajectory of culture as I see it to become more like I think it should be. And I think if if as followers of Jesus, there are two primary ways that we we do this. I think the first practice is what I would describe as going wanting to go to war against culture, and it's and we'd kind of say, well, that's for the sake of the gospel. Um, for, for Jesus in public life. And I think it envisions and longs for a community and a state and, and maybe even a world where it's governed by Christian principles and by Christian leaders. It's some kind of thing that we we long for. And, and the different products, the different things that are out there or any form of art that isn't created by Christians it's hard for us to get behind. It's hard for us to endorse or enjoy and and maybe even really hard for us to relate to. And I think, I think this posture really, or this this practice takes on a posture of superiority. It's almost like, well, I'm a little better than those people out there. And I think what happens is that we end up wanting to engage culture, and sometimes we feel superiority, maybe sometimes we feel a little bit of shame for this, but we want to engage culture mostly in political terms, or not engaging and then bunkering down with others who are like-minded to keep us away from the danger. And and no doubt some of us in here, that maybe is, is an approach, a posture that actually feels most comfortable, something that we are familiar with. But I think there's a second practice, and again, I'm speaking in generalities here, but I think it's, in, the second practice is interested in operating in the world that we live in alongside basically anyone who is pursuing justice and the betterment of people. And in a way, it's also at war, but, but, but it's rooted in different values, so it's a different kind of war, And I think it's the practice of of listening with empathy to people who are struggling, to people who are, are vulnerable, people who are oppressed... And it's responding with action to change their reality, to maybe change their future. And it's often working alongside others regardless of what the others may or may not believe, regardless of their background, because there's this deep conviction that God is always at work through his image bearers, through his people. And neither one of those is actually perfect, but I would argue that, that the second one is closer to what Jesus modeled. And and I would present maybe for consideration that the first practice sees cultural decay and points out the blotches of disease while retreating. But the second practice sees the blotches of disease on everyone, Christians and ourselves included, and we extend a healing balm of some kind. Again, I think more in line with what Jesus did. But man, I hear it and I understand it and I know it. And, and sometimes we think through that second way and it can seem, isn't that just going to enable things that shouldn't be enabled? I mean, it seems super simple. It could be offensive. It can come across as naive or, or maybe, well, that, that won't work. That's not really very effective. And yet it does have similarities to who Jesus was, to what Jesus did. It's a it's a way of culture making, it's a way of culture restoring that is rooted in the story of God and those of us who bear his image. But we don't always act, right? I mean, sometimes we react. Sometimes we scream. What do we scream at? We scream at the TV, at social media, at our neighbor, at people that we know are there in the world, even though we don't know them personally, the educational system, the famous person. It goes on and on. We just find ourselves screaming. And in a sense, rather than responding, rather than acting, we're just reacting. And I think, there's probably better words, but is that not out of dread, don't we just dread the way things are and, and don't we sometimes look to the future and there's just dread like, oh, man, this is not going to be any better. And, and we find ourselves longing for the good old days, which, of course, there never were the good old days except for like the first few days in the garden, right? Those were the good old days. And so here's the good news. Whether you consider yourself a follower of Jesus or not. In fact, for some of you that aren't followers of Jesus, maybe it's been followers of Jesus that have caused you to scream. And I'm so sorry for that. But I want you to know wherever you are that Jesus hears your scream. Whether it's out of fear or anger or frustration or uncertainty or whatever, he hears your scream. And, and from the first day of humanity, God set in motion a way to answer the scream, to redeem and restore His people to redeem and restore all of us screamers and the way that we live. It's really His story. Man, many things, right? Think about it. Think of how many things compete for your allegiance, for your attention, compete to be the highest priority in your life, sometimes really good things. There's media and entertainment in it, and it seeks to captivate our attention, Right? Political and social causes demand our full allegiance. Family, work, working out, um, community, different forms of community consume our activity. Relationships, food, art, music, sports, those, those are the things that stir our affections. And I think, I think as we go through life, there, there's pain, there's dissatisf- dissatisfaction, there's disorientation. And it makes us sometimes want to scream, and it can lead us to, man, I just want to escape. I just don't want to feel this way anymore. And so we'll do whatever we can to bring about comfort or numbness, and sometimes that leads to these all-consuming addictions. And the lure, I think, at the end of the day is to practice isolation, maybe aggression, maybe indifference, maybe recklessness to practice the pursuit of of lust and and greed and, and gluttony because it just makes us feel better even if it's just for a moment. And ultimately, how we see, how we choose to interact with the world, it takes a hit and it clouds our vision and we do become distracted and we do become disoriented to the very people that we were created and called to be. It gets lost somewhere in the shuffle. But here's the good news. When we reorient or orient our lives around Jesus, his story becomes our practice. His story becomes our practice. So we're going to jump in the Wayback Machine and go back to Genesis chapter 1. And we'll go to verse 28. And here's what it says. We're just 28 verses in, right, to what God's sharing with all of us. And he says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and discover the birds of the heavens and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves to earth. And I always think of this verse because when we were church planting Carol and I we were we cranked out three kids pretty quick. We weren't very old and there was an older lady in the church I think she meant well but she's like, "Boy, you sure know how to be fruitful." Okay, and it's like, well, we're a church plant, so we're trying to have more people here. Okay, um, they're not very good giving units because they're one year old. But um, all right, here I'm giving you here to go in your piggy bank. Let's give that to the church. All right, but here's the deal: in in ancient times, you know what kings would call themselves? The kings would call themselves the image of God. Right? Say, so I am the image of God. And it meant, why they said that is because if they're the image of God, then that means that they have all authority and they can discern what's good, what's evil. It gave them the right to tell people what to do or what not to do. And guess what the kings would do? They would have statues of themselves made. And the Hebrew word for that was what we kind of get the word idol from. That's what they would do. But ancient Israel, however, they didn't view their kings as the God, right? In fact, they were never supposed to even make images of God because there's nothing that would suffice, right? And more importantly, and this is the powerful thing, God already took care of doing that because he made us. He says, you want an image? I'll make an image. It's you, and so the task to rule and subdue that was thought to belong to elite kings is, is actually the mission of every human being. Right? We're, we're to subdue, subdue, subdue and rule, given that thing is given to every human being. And I know that in our culture, the way we live now, you hear the word rule and subdue. And it has negative connotations typically, kind of these negative undertones of domination. But to the original audience of Genesis, it didn't carry this idea. What it meant for thousands of years was for human beings to love, uh, to move out to love and care for the world as God would love and care for the world. That's really what it meant, meant to subdue into rule. And in its simplest forms, it is literally something like turning grain into bread or leather into shoes, my personal favorite, milk and sugar into ice cream, grapes into wine. And where I would say amen to the ice cream, some of you would say amen to the wine because I think a bunch of your school's starting again, right? So there you go. And and moreover, it's bringing things to fullness. That's really the idea. It's bringing something to its completion to fullness, make it as awesome as it could possibly be. And so it was literally creating communities where people could care for each other, be together. And so this ruling, subduing is really the day-to-day achievement of our work and our creativity, and that's your, that's humanity's sacred task. That's what we're supposed to do. And the picture that we have of this from day one is gardening, okay? So think about that, okay? Rule and subdue. If you're not careful, you think of sort of this domineering posture, but but the picture that we have from the Bible is actually one of gardening, and that changes everything because in order to be a good gardener, there's this cultivation aspect, right? You have to cultivate the ground and make the ground ready and have the right nutrients and, and all of those things. I have no clue that any of that's true, but I think it is. I don't know gardening, all right? But there's kind of innovation. What kind of tools and, and what do I need to create to be a better gardener and, and produce a better carp, the, a crop? There's, there's consideration, right? And at the end of the day, what you're really doing is creating something. And so as we begin to think, what is our, our task here on earth, we have to go back to this and say, well, I was made, right? I, I, was, I, was, I was made to create something, I was made to to bring to fullness God's creation. And so we have to lean into that. And so that's God's story. And it was becoming our practice. And culture always begins as stories. God God created from his word alone this good and, and beautiful world that was vested with unbelievable potential And he said, hey, here it is. Here's a starting point. Now you take it further. You bring about the best that this world has to offer. And he really commissioned us just to make more of it, right? And I would argue that it's just to make more and more and more culture. And some beautiful things have been made. I mean, sitting around a fire pit with a beverage of your choice, with the friends that you love, that's a beautiful thing right? Father-daughter dances, golf, ballet, basketball, all these forms of communication, music. I mean, it goes on and on. So all this culture has been made, and so much of it is amazing. But we all know, too, that there's another side, that much of the culture humans created has caused suffering. It's brought about injustice and pain, and, and it's because rather than using our authority for common good, we've used it for, well, what serves me best? What's in my own self-interest? And so this story that started with God is headed for this tragic ending. And, And if we stop there, then we have every reason and right to just scream. But God comes and bounds himself to humanity through Jesus. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And, and Jesus is the one who shows us what it looks like to rule, right, to truly rule as a human image bearer of God. And, and think about how he ruled, right? Let's lean into that. He ruled by suffering. He ruled by seeking the best for others and putting himself, be- putting himself beneath them. He rules by loving his friends and his enemies. He serves, he heals, he listens, he cares. He hugs the the diseased. He talks with shunned women. He makes space and time for children. He forgives, he calms the sea. He makes sure a wedding has wine. He battles evil, he battles injustice, and he takes on and defeats the ultimate death, the ultimate enemy, That's Jesus' story. It's to be our practice as we are people after Jesus. And so the New Testament writers, they look back at Jesus' life, they look at his his resurrection, and they see this whole new future for humanity by Jesus' story becoming the very thing that his followers do. And I think people of Jesus' day did not understand him. We don't understand him entirely today. And most religious leaders of the day, they were always trying to trap Jesus. Like, okay, we're going to trap you in some way. And in one of those instances, we read in Matthew 22, it says says this, this teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Okay, what's Jesus going to say? And Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul and with all your mind this is the great and first commandment this is the great and first commandment and a second is like is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets now it might just be me and I'm not the smartest guy but that verse still to this day it's always a little weird to me Just that whole passage, that answer is a little weird to me. Because Jesus, right, he's saying the second, loving your neighbor, is just like the first, right, loving God. And a very poor rendering might be something like, the greatest commandment is that you would love the infinite, almighty, powerful God with all your heart and your mind and all your soul, and in the same way, love your neighbor Earl. It's like, huh? I mean, the guy who shoots out fireworks all year long and his dog thinks my front yard's his personal spa and bathroom? That guy I'm supposed to love as myself? And it's kind of odd, but we have more detail in Luke 11. It's sort of the other side of this story. It's the same story, but the other side. And, and the lawyer is looking kind of bad, but he asks a great question, a super legitimate question. He says, okay, then who's my neighbor? Fine, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, well, who is my neighbor? Surely it can't be everyone. Surely I'm not just supposed to love everyone. I can think of people that don't deserve my love. And so Jesus then, this is where he tells that story that many of us are familiar to of the Good Samaritan. And he says, do you know who your neighbor is? Your neighbor is the Samaritan, which would have been shocking to that person because many of you know this, but but there's incredible significance because in that day, Jewish people loathed Samaritans. They saw Samaritans as, as ethnically inferior and as people who perverted and distorted everything that they called sacred. They despised them. And here's Jesus being pressed. Well, who's my neighbor? Who do I have to love? How do we get out of loving certain people? Surely I don't have to love everybody. And Jesus is saying, well, you know the people that trash the things you find sacred? You know those people? That's your neighbor. Love them. That's what you're made for. Now think about, I think if we, really think about that, it's going to be jarring and maybe a little unsettling. Because we know people in this world, either that we're close to or distant from, but we know that they want to trash everything that we find sacred. And the thought, the idea that we would truly love them is just really hard. And if we really think about the implications of that, I think it's unsettling and jarring because somewhere deep inside, it's like, I don't know if I can or if I really want to do that. And so we have this kind of mandate from creation that we're to subdue and rule the earth. It got all messed up. Jesus comes. It gets renewed. And so Jesus said, here's the mission. The mission is to love your neighbor. Right? The, 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 The picture of this is the Samaritan or people that are are distant from you or think different than you or or would trash the very things that you think are sacred. And the practice is serving, right? That's the story of the the Good Samaritan. It's serving, it's helping, it's self-sacrifice. It's seeking the best for another person, especially those who are in a really bad way, even though they may be very different from you. And so we do that even for those who mock and trash everything we find sacred. And this is the way of Jesus. It's his story. And as we chase after him, as we come after him, as we follow him, it becomes our our practice. And so how do we do that? I mean, is there a real way to do that? And I think, right, I, I think that most of us, if there's a person that is suffering some way physically or maybe even emotionally in some way, to, in a general degree, we kind of know the idea, like, well, I should help them. We sort of know what we should do, and I'd hope that we would do that. But I want to look at something that's a little more nuanced, that's, that's centered around this idea of engaging our culture, and it's what leads us to Acts 17. And and it's a little bit less obvious, but still, I mean, our task that was given way back at creation comes, and it's renewed through Jesus. And we're going to see through Paul how we really do this, and we're gonna see it in Acts 17. I think it's a, a really good example of loving or engaging our neighbors. So you have the Apostle Paul Yes, Apostle Paul is, is a Roman Jew, Jew and, and he heads to Athens. And Athens is this interesting town. It's large. There's more than a million people there. Um, there's all these ancient manuscripts that, that come from there. And it was, it was written several times that it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was a man because they were super religious. They had all kinds of gods everywhere. And so... They're overtly overtly religious, and Paul is coming. He's engaging the Athenians, and he's going to go to this thing that's called the Eregopagus, okay, the Eregopagus. And he's going there, and he says, well, that's the place where people gathered, and they talked about life, and they talked about marriage, and they talked about relationships and the economy, and they talked about all those kinds of things. And so Paul comes in, and he's got some things to say after he's obviously gone out and seen their culture and seen some of the things that they're up to. And so it says this in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, what therefore you worship as a known I proclaim to you. And so Paul obviously had examined their objects of worship, and there's a statue that is made to the unknown God, and he goes, hey, I know that guy. I know that God. He doesn't come in and say, hey, you bunch of sinners, repent. You bunch of idol worshipers. Instead, he's like, hey, you know what? You worship. Worship is a thing God created. It's, It's wired in you. I know the God that you would refer to as the unknown God. It continues on in verse 24. The God, he goes on, he says, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So think about it. Paul walks around. He takes a look, and he says, listen, there's this God that you are paying homage to that you don't know. Let me tell you about him. And and here's the thing about this God. He doesn't dwell in temples. Stone and metal, silver, gold, none of that can represent him, and he doesn't need attendants, because God is so mighty that that he takes care of himself and that he's God over all. And then he continues. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said. Again, he's, re- he's, he's in their own culture, their own things, and referring to it. Some have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought to not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now the command all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so here's Paul. He says, man, God is everywhere, right? Right? He can't be represented the way that you are representing him. It, there's, you can't kneel before a stone and think that you're somehow engaging with, with God. And, and it began apparently to make sense to the Athenians, who are completely religious and I wonder if about sometime in this conversation, when there's no way we have all the conversation, that they began to get a little terrified. Like, wow, if there is this God, and if this God really is everything that, that Paul says he is, then what we've been doing is probably hacking him off. He's probably going to smoke us. And that's when Paul enters the gospel and the resurrection. And if you get to the end of chapter 17, you see that many that were there became followers, became believers in Jesus. And so what does it look like to engage culture? So, so again, I want to see we have that initial task, that initial mandate, right? That we're going to bring out the best that, that this world has to offer. We're going to, going to help move it toward fullness. Everything got messed up. Jesus comes. He renews us. He says, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to love your neighbor. He shows us the way to do that. And so how then do we engage and be part of the practice of restoring culture. I think maybe these are some things things that just toss out your way to consider. It starts with humility, not antagonism. I mean, you think about the difference between demolition, tearing something down, right? What what comes to mind? I always think of just like a sledgehammer, right? You're just gonna go around and break everything down. I think sometimes that's more the approach we wanna take when we see things in this world that we don't like, But then you think of a restoration project. My dad used to restore old cars all the time. And the tools he used would help get rid of the rust and refine things and shape things and restore them to the way that they were supposed to look originally. And I really believe that's the call on our life as followers of Jesus. And it's only going to happen through humility. And that humility comes from knowing that God truly loves us. It's faith, not schemes. It's obediently living out your call as image bearers of God. Faith in not what you can do, but what in God can do, what God wants to do. It's not politics. It's not winsomeness. It's not a church program. It's not counseling or boycotting or warring. It's none of those things. One of my favorite stories of faith, when um, church I, I pastored for a long time, we used to be, when we are starting out, we used to be between a hardware store and a liquor store. We were like a man's church, man. It was like perfect. And one day, our our front office worker, this dear lady, um, there is a guy who comes into our church during the week because he thought he was coming into the liquor store. And he was inebriated, and he's looking all over for the liquor. And this sweet lady says, hey, there's no liquor here. I mean, there's, there's the fruit of the Spirit here maybe, you know, but that's all we got. And so she, being very serving, being very loving, engaged with him, she actually takes him over to the liquor store where he was looking to buy his next drink, and she helps reach up on the counter and get the very liquor that he needed, goes to the counter, buys liquor for him, sends him on his way. And some of you are like, that was wrong. And maybe, I don't know, But she had faith in a God who could do something in a man's life. He shows up at church the next Sunday. It's one of those amazing things that happen that don't happen all the time. He ends up giving his life over to Jesus, and from that point forward, never took another drink. That's the God we serve. He wants to restore people, and sometimes in very simple ways, sometimes in miraculous ways, but that's what he wants to do. And so we need to not, have, not, not put all our energy and effort into schemes. We put our energy and effort into growing and developing our faith because we believe that there's a God who can restore people because we know he's restored us. It's discernment, not recklessness, right? Right? I probably don't need to say this, but wanting to engage with your, your fellow buddies by going to a strip club, that's not, the great, that's not a great move, okay? Um, you know, sharing the latest intel about your friend Francine with all of your girlfriends, that's not great. That's not engaging. That's actually being reckless. That's being dishonest. And I think in this area, there's probably more gray than black and white, but I think your involvement, in what you choose to do, how you choose to engage, it needs to be rooted, it needs to be anchored in your love for God and following the example of Jesus. And it's engagement, not separatism. And man, I learned growing up, I, I grew up in such a cool church. I love the church. One of the things I learned, but there's a lot of bad people out there, avoid them because they're going to mess you up, right? It's the whole apple, you know, one bad apple is going to ruin everything. And and I think I've come to believe that through Jesus Christ, one good apple can change a whole bunch of bad ones. And so we have to engage. The church was never meant to be a subculture within culture. I really don't believe that. We're not to be a refuge from the world, but for the world. And I think the method of Paul, and more importantly Jesus, kind of helps us understand how we're to engage with this world that we live in. And then it's got to be love, not obligation. Otherwise, it won't be, if it's just obligation, just something, I guess I got to do that. It won't last. But the deeper you know and love God, your love for others will increase. And then it's stories, not speeches. Man, if you're a follower of Jesus, right, you got a story. Man, we're moved by story. Paul shared his story, his encounter with the unknowable God and declared that this God is very knowable, I know firsthand. If you're a follower of Jesus, your story matters. If you're not a follower of Jesus, your story matters. And if you have this story of encountering Jesus, man, share that, know that, share that, describe that. And of course you can't prove it. You can't say, well, this is absolutely true, I encountered Jesus, here's what happened. But it also can't be disproved. You know what you can do, though? You can share your story and then let others decide if your story's legit based on how you live your life. Say, man, they love people. They're generous. They're full of hope. They're this, or that. There's gotta be something to that story that they share. And I'd end with proclaiming this. And I'm gonna ask the band to come out and just... Um, shortly lead us into a time of worship through song. But I'd borrow heavily from the Apostle Paul and I'd just proclaim this. That being filled with Jesus' own presence, with his spirit, filled with joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, integrity, gentleness, self-control, that his story As a husband, as a wife, as a worker, as an athlete, as as all these things, his story can be your practice. Because we're people in whom God's image is being restored. And people who he wants to use to be part of his restoration plan. See, our screams, our screams, whatever they may be, they can be restored. And all of a sudden those screams become proclamations of love our screams our screams as as screamers we become conduits to love to kindness to compassion and we move from screamers to just whispers of, of assurance and peace and joy and when we do that When we live that way, when when Jesus' story becomes our practice, you know what passes through all of nature and the culture we live in? The very thing that this world most needs. Hope. Hope. God, I thank you for your word. Help us to be extenders of your goodness, your grace, and your hope. God, use us to be part of your restoration plan for this world that we live in. Give us a deeper desire to love even those who trash our, the stuff that we hold so dear. Help us to make your story our practice. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.